You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, church, 18 years ago, uh, during the summer, I distinctly remember driving up about three hours up Route 61 on the east side of Missouri to a really small town called Canton, Missouri. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that none of you have been to Canton, Missouri. It's about uh, 1,500 people, and in the midst of Canton, Missouri, is an incredibly small college called Culver Stockton College. Um, I, had, uh, I had convinced myself that the football coach really wanted me there, even though I wasn't offered a scholarship. And I believe that up until the point in time that I started to meet with him and the rest of the team, and he would point to me and he would be like, Michael, you're really going to bring our GPA up on this football team. And it was at that point in time I knew I was going to see a lot of the bench in the inside of a classroom and not a whole lot of the football field. But, but on, the, on the day that we drove up there, it was me, my mother, and my father, and they, and they drove me up there to get me settled in the dorm and to, to bring all of kind of the furniture and stuff that I was moving with. Now, moving up there and having them drop me off, uh, it, it was my senior year of high school was a tough year. I, I was a rebellious child, and, uh, and that caused, as you might imagine, strife in relationship between my parents and I. And so it was a little bit of a, a somber dropping off, and we got everything unpacked, and, 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 and my, my parents were getting ready to, to leave, and my dad pulled me aside, and he he walked me outside the dorm, and I, I thought, uh-oh, he, he's figured out something else that I've done wrong over the last year that I thought that I had covered up. And he pulled me outside, and, and he began to talk to me about what lay ahead for me. He, he began to talk to me about the responsibilities that I now had as I was leaving their home and, and living on my own. He began to talk to me about the temptations that lay before me, about the pitfalls that were placed in front of me, the, the places that I might go wrong. It, it was a sobering moment and a sobering conversation for me. And, and in that moment, what I didn't realize was that that sobering conversation was one of the most loving things that my father could do for me in that moment. Because what lay ahead for me were a ton of opportunities for me to fall again and again and again. Listen, the, the reason I bring that up is we're coming to the end of a sermon series. This sermon series, Words of Life, a, a theology of words. A sermon series where we have laid before you the words of our Heavenly Father and what it looks like for us to go and speak those words to the world. But, but I need you to hear, church, that there are pitfalls waiting for us out there. That there are temptations waiting for us out there. That there are places where we can go wrong. And, and Holy Scripture itself, it doesn't hide this truth from us. Right? Peter, in one of his letters, he, he exhorts the church that he's writing not to be surprised at the trials and suffering that awaits them. Paul again and again communicates to us the truth that difficulty is a normal part of the Christian life. Jesus himself said to us that we 
will have tribulation in this world. And so as much as we want you to learn what it looks like to preach the gospel to yourself, to preach the good news of the gospel to the world out there, to speak as peacemakers, to speak with humility, as Pastor Adam preached, to speak as ambassadors, given uh, uh, the good news of reconciliation. As Pastor Brett spoke about how we speak as worshipers who have seen the goodness of Jesus. We also want you to know and to learn what it looks like for us to speak against the enemy that exists. Right? What does it look like for us to speak to our enemy, our forefathers, Adam and Eve, when they were face-to-face with our enemy, when they were face-to-face with Satan, they failed miserably. And so what does it look like for us to be equipped to speak to our enemy? And, and I don't want you to just kind of think of our enemy as some magical, mythical, not really present in our life enemy. What does it look like to speak against the lies that we believe in our culture? What does it look like to speak against the lies and temptations that we hear from the mouths of others? And probably most important, what does it look like for us to speak against the lies and temptations that we believe from ourselves? Well, the answer to this, quite honestly, and I hope the answer to everything we do at Mercy's Door, is to cast our eyes on Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look from Matthew chapter 4 at five ways we speak to the enemy. It begins in verse 1 of chapter 4 with this truth. We speak to and against the enemy by speaking first to our Father. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus, which shows up in the book of Mark and Luke as well, it kind of sets the stage for us by giving us two pieces of information, two, two contexts. One, Matthew tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted. Right? The, the book of James tells us clearly that God tempts no one, but he will bring us into places where our faith is tested. And that testing is not to reveal to God whether or not we have faith, because he knows. The testing is to reveal to us the depths of our faith and trust in the Lord. Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted, and then second, we're told that when he arrives, In the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, now we typically read that that second sentence, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry with an emphasis on the point that he was hungry, right? That his flesh was weakened at the end of 40 days. But conversely, we would expect that after 40 days of fasting, while his flesh was weakened, his spirit strengthened. 
See, fasting almost unanimously throughout Scripture is tied to prayer. The reason that people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament fasted was that they could carve out these dedicated times where their body would become so so needy in hunger that it would drive them to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, before being tempted, spent 40 days fasting and praying in order to submit himself in dependence upon his heavenly Father. Now here's why that's important. And here's why it's beautiful. This temptation is in many ways a replaying of the first temptation. The temptation of Adam and Eve. And when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, He called them to work it and keep it. Literally to work the garden and to protect the garden. But when Satan, the evil one, makes his way into the garden, it's as if Adam and Eve are caught by surprise. They are utterly unprepared for the temptation that is to come. But Jesus isn't. And he isn't because he spent 40 days on his face, weakening his flesh and submitting himself to The Father. Jesus is showing us that facing our enemy first means becoming weak so that we might rest on the strength of the Lord Himself. His power didn't come from His earthly preparation. Right? I don't know what athlete, what competitor in preparation for a physical fight or event or competition would starve themselves for 40 days would utterly weaken their flesh. The only reason that you would do that is if you wanted to make yourself so weak that you would have no temptation to try and be enough yourself. When Satan comes, Jesus was indeed hungry. But he knew what to do with his inadequacy, his weakness, his hunger, and that was to immediately go to the presence and the grace and mercy of His heavenly Father. Martin Luther, when he spoke about prayer, even as he, uh, in his commentary on the Lord's Prayer, described it, believed that the primary, or at least one of the primary purposes of prayer, was to fight a spiritual battle against our enemy. The the Apostle Paul, when he goes through that that pretty famous passage in Ephesians Ephesians 6 about putting on the whole armor of God, do you know what the, the one thing that kind of ties the entire armor of God together that is the foundation for all of our defense? It's prayer. Listen, church, another saying by Martin Luther that I love. He said, I have such a busy day ahead of me that I can't help but spend three hours this morning in prayer. And you go, what are you you talking about? I'm I'm trying to sneak in 15 seconds of prayer, and you're telling me that your day is so busy that you have to spend three hours in prayer beforehand? What he's saying is, I have so much that I will come up against that the only hope that I have is to, like a little child, run to my father and say, Father, what do you want me to do? Help I can't, but you can. 
before we ever speak to the enemy, to the lies of the enemy, the lies of the world, to the lies of others, and to the lies that we believe, first we must speak to our Heavenly Father. Second, we speak from our identity. The story goes on in verse 3, and it says, And the tempter, that's, that's literally the word Satan, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The the temptation of Jesus, if you go back a few verses, occurs directly on the heels of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus goes to the Jordan River where he is baptized by John the Baptist. And in the the midst of this amazing moment, Jesus is baptized and as he's brought up from the river, out of the waters, the, the skies break open. The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, and the, the Father speaks audibly for all the world to hear, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? I, I think to myself all the time, God, if you could just for one moment break the skies open and speak that over me, then my doubts, my fears, my insecurities would vanish. From there, I would know everything's going to be all right. But what happens to Jesus after, directly after the moments he hears from his heavenly Father, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He doesn't go to the throne room. He doesn't go off to live a life primarily of comfort or peace as we would see it. Instead, he is sent by that loving Father as the beloved Son into the wilderness to be tempted. And when Satan shows up, his big ploy, and I know, again, right, like as our, our bellies rumble thinking about not having food for 40 days, we think, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have to turn the stones into bread. I just eat the stones at that point in time. Right, like that's the big ploy, we think. That's the big temptation, but it's not. What's the first words that come out of the mouth of Satan? If you are the Son of God. He says it again later on in verse 6. If you are the Son of God. This is Satan's temptation again and again for Jesus. And it's Satan's temptation primarily again and again for you. He desires above everything else for us to doubt and disbelieve, even forsake our position as the beloved children of God Almighty. A commentator, as I was reading through this, said, Satan tempts us because he wants us back. That our identity was, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, at one point in time, children of wrath. Sons and daughters of disobedience. We belong to the enemy, not our heavenly Father. But now, in Christ, we belong to Him. And like Jesus, the words, You are my beloved Son, my beloved child, are spoken over us. And the big temptation is for, Jesus, or for Satan to say, Are you sure? But he says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, essentially, why are you hungry? If you are the Son of God, why are you out here in this wilderness? If you are the Son of God, surely you can provide for yourself. 
And he, he says that to us too. He says, if you are the son and the daughter of the king, then why do you face difficulty in your life? If you're the son and daughter of the king, why do you face suffering? If you're the son and daughter, then why does it feel like he's withholding good things from you? If you're his son and daughter, then why doesn't your plan match up with his plans? If you're the son and daughter, then why do you feel like you have unfulfilled desires? If you're the son and the daughter, then why do you feel insecure? Why do you feel worthless? Why do you fail so often? This is the temptation of Satan again and again and again. Last week when I I preached at a partner church of ours, I, I love kind of preaching at other places because I'm not in a sermon series. And so I typically spend a week before I do sermon prep just asking the Lord, what do you want them to hear? And again and again, I go back to the, the passage that has been so formative in my life and as a pastor in Jeremiah chapter 2, where the Lord God says, essentially, here's my paraphrase, you sin because you believe you have found fault in me. And the greatest sin that I hold against you is that you have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, the spring of life, the satisfier and lover of your soul, and you have turned to broken cisterns, holes in the ground, muddy, dirty water that cannot satisfy you. See, the temptation is never that we look at the broken cistern and say, that tastes so good. The temptation is for us to look at the muddy, dirty water on the ground and say, That's all I have. I don't have a heavenly father that will provide for me pleasure and joy, comfort, significance, value, security. I'm an orphan and I have to fend for myself. And that's exactly what Satan is doing. And so the call is for us to ground ourselves so deeply in the gospel That when our identity first and foremost becomes that of a child of God, then the lies and temptations of our enemy and the world and others and even the lies we speak to ourselves loses their power. Because if I am a beloved child, let me tell you what my children don't do. Several years ago, Rachel and I went through the process of adopting a six-year-old girl uh, from Ghana in West Africa, and we each got to fly over and spend a week with her, and and we would go to this orphanage. We'd stay in this little, I'd call it a hotel, but that's a really, really generous term for what we stayed in, and we'd go to the orphanage in the morning, and the first thing that would happen when we showed up we would be surrounded, not just by this six-year-old little girl, but by other children, desperately searching and looking to see if we had snacks, foods, or treats on us. That's all they wanted. Right? I'm, I'm trying to like sit here and like bond with you know, like this, this child that may become my daughter, and all she, she, she keeps, daddy, daddy, that's what they called every like, you know, adult male. Daddy, you have toffee which means candy. I'm like, no, I don't have, I don't have, I can give you a hug. You want a hug? You know, she's like, no. Right? My kids, they ask for a lot of things, but they are never nervously asking me for food. As a matter of fact, in our house, I'm typically trying to get them to ask for food 
rather than just take it. Orphans beg, borrow, and steal because they have no one to provide for them. But children of the king know that they are provided for. We speak to the enemy first after speaking to the Father and then always out of the place of our identity in Christ. Third, we speak of God's command and his characteristics. The story goes on. Jesus answered Satan, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus answers Satan's first temptation to turn the stones into bread with the word of God from the book of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. It says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus does two things. One, he speaks to Satan what God has said. And he also speaks to Satan who God is. Here's the fullness of Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. Jesus only spoke a portion of it. It says this, And he humbled you, he's talking to Israel, and he let you hunger, but then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is saying to Satan that he need not rely upon himself nor even earthly bread because his heavenly Father will and can provide for him even if it takes him bringing miraculous substance from heaven. Now, here, here's why I want you to hear this. One, it's critical that you and I are able and ready to speak both the commands of God and the characteristics of God to our enemy. But if you've ever heard this sermon, this passage preached, you'll hear them say, you, you simply need to memorize Scripture. Or, or you'll hear them say, you just need to speak Scripture to the enemy. And you do but look what happens next. Satan knows Scripture too. Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, Jesus, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus replied, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, here, here's what I need you to know. Scripture is not filled with dry words that we use like magical incantations. It's not filled with dry words. This is not the great holy rule book, right? This is not like Moses's penal code. This is the words of God 
that brings us back to the person of God. The point of Scripture, the point of knowing His Word, of memorizing it, of hiding it in our hearts, of having it at the tip of our tongue and on our lips, is that we would know the nature and character of our God. We have to know Him, not just know about Him. Do you see the difference in that distinction? Several years ago, before I was in ministry, I, I traveled a ton for my, my job. And, and all of my extended family is from the state of Michigan in the Detroit area. And so, like, across the board, I'm a Detroit sports fan. And so you guys can pray for me, because it's not easy, okay? Um, one time, I was flying out to Washington, D.C. for my job, and I got off the plane, and I was walking through the terminal, and there was this guy that was real, I mean, he was a big guy, like 6'9", six, 6'10". Six, and I look at him for a second, and I'm like, I know him. He plays for the Detroit Pistons. He, he was a guy that was drafted out of Georgetown, was from the Washington, D.C. area. My guess is he was flying home, but he played for the Pistons. And I was like, I know him. Now, you know what would have been crazy? If I would have walked up to him and be like, hey, man, how's the wife and kids? You know, like, you guys good? How's marriage? You believe in the gospel right now? Like, where, where are you struggling at right now? Because he would look at me and be like, I don't know you and you don't know me. And I, you know what I probably would have responded? Oh, no, I know you. I know how many points you scored in college, how many rebounds you averaged this last year. I know the win-loss record. I watched you fail to get the Pistons into the playoffs again. Like, I know you. But I didn't know him. I knew about him. I knew all sorts of odd, semi-creepy maybe even things about him. But I didn't know him. And listen, a lot of Christ followers wield this thing. Excuse my language. Like a creepy statistics book. You know all about the stats of God. You can tell God about all the things that he has done you can tell him all the stories that he was in. You have watched him even from afar. But you don't know him. Jesus didn't just speak words about God to Satan. He spoke the words of God, his heavenly Father. He spoke the truth of who God is and was to the enemy. We must speak the Lord's commands, but also we must know and speak His character. This is why whenever we approach Scripture, the first two questions we ask are what? Who is God and what has He done? Before who am I and what do I do, we cast our eyes and ask the Lord, help me to taste and see and know that You are good. We speak first to our Father. We speak from our identity and we speak of the Lord's commands and His characters and then we speak with the cross in view. Satan tempts Jesus, these first two temptations, in many ways that he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. But he saves the most heart-wrenching temptation for last. It says this in verses 8-10. to Again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain. 
And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And this is, is a heart-wrenching temptation if you understand what Satan is after here. Because on face value, it feels like a really odd temptation that Satan would take Jesus onto a mountain and offer him the kingdoms of all the world. Now, why is that? Because Jesus had already been promised the rule and reign and glory of all the kingdoms of the world. So what is Satan offering Jesus in that moment? He's offering Jesus the rule and reign and glory of all the kingdoms of the world without the cross. See, Jesus knows from eternity past where he is headed. He came from heaven to earth with the cross in view. Philippians chapter 2 said that not counting equality with God is something to be grasped. He emptied himself. He lowers himself. He takes on human flesh and he humbles himself in obedience to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him as the name above all names, the name at which eventually every knee shall bow. His rule and reign came through the cross and the temptation to Jesus was, don't go through the cross, I've got something easier. And listen, church, this is the same temptation that we face as well. The temptation by our enemy to us is that we would forsake our own cross. That, he, that we would forsake giving over this life to the Father in order to find an eternal life in Him and through Him. Jesus understood that the Father was worthy of even the sacrifice of the cross and that he was to be trusted in his promises. That when the Father said to the Son, all of heaven and earth will be yours. That when he said to the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be raised to life and glory and seated at my right hand, that he was good for it. And our Heavenly Father tells us the same thing. And you might be saying, like, Michael, I, I didn't know I was heading towards a cross. Right? But you are. Jesus said to us, he who would gain his life must first lose it. Like, the choice is always your best life now or the eternal life that your heavenly Father has for you. It's always either grasping a hold of the best comfort and the best pleasure and the best value and the best security that you can get yourself on this side of eternity or giving your life over and saying to your heavenly Father, you give me the pleasure that you have and the comfort that you have, and the rest that you have, and the peace that you have, and the security and value that only you have, and you have promised to give to me. The temptation will be, church, for us to see the cross 
and believe the lie of the enemy that he has something just as good for us. But can I just say this for two seconds? Like if we pause and think of our lives, we know he doesn't. You know how I know? I'd like you to raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand. We'll just do this anonymously. Metaphorically raise your hand. If you have enough money right now where you're like, Psh, don't need any more. Right? Raise your hand if right now you're like, I look so good right now that I don't need to work on my fitness. Right? I don't need to work on my learning new clothes. I got that. You do. You do, Justin. Mm. Right? Ra- like, metaphorically raise your hand right now if you have all the comfort you need. If you're like, you know what? I, I think I should get a new mattress because this one is too comfortable. I need something that just, you know, makes me wake up and feel like I displaced a rib. Not that I know anybody that did that recently. You got, you got enough peace? Got enough rest? No. Like, if I, if I really wanted to drive the point home, here's what I would tell you. Count up the number of iPhones you've had in your life. Right? Doesn't that just prove? We're like, man, that next iPhone, is gonna, it's going to do it for me. And then iPhone 74 comes out, and we're like, oh, that one has an extra camera. It's got seven on the back. That's the one, that's what I've been missing in my life. Right? It doesn't satisfy. But the Lord calls us into something better, but that something better is through the cross. You can't get resurrection without death. And so we hand over this life that we think we can build, the plans that we think are the best, the preferences that we have in trusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father. We speak to the enemy knowing and having the cross in view. Let me drive this point home. One, one last piece. The last couple of centuries, as kind of the, the rise of, of secular philosophy and sociology and psychology began to kind of really build, many of the most famous psychologists of the time looked at the Christian religion and they were simply not able to get their arms around it was odd, it was backwards, in, in many of their views, it was utterly nefarious, and here's why. Because the epitome of the Christian religion was the symbol of the cross. And they thought to themselves, why would any religion, any line of thought, why would any people group choose a symbol of weakness and powerlessness and death as the epitome of who they are and what they believe in. And they couldn't get their arms around it because they didn't understand that on the other side of this symbol of the greatest love, grace, and mercy that we could ever know is a resurrection that brings redemption for all eternity. We speak first to our Father. We speak out of our identity. We speak the commands and characteristics of God and we speak with the cross in view. The story ends in verse 11. Then the devil left him and behold, 
the angels came and were ministering to him. When we see Jesus in Scripture, we see the perfect man. We, we see the epitome of humanity, the perfection of what humanity was meant to be. Right In this passage alone, Jesus perfectly depended upon the Father in prayer. He perfectly stood upon His identity as the Son of Man, the Son of God. He perfectly knew the words of His Heavenly Father. And He knew perfectly that He came from heaven to earth in order to pursue for the joy set before Him the cross. Jesus is worthy above all else for us to look at Him as an example. As the example for us to follow. But, but Jesus is so much more than an example. Right? Jesus is our Messiah. He's our Savior. He's our help in time of need. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. The last truth of how we speak is we speak as ones victorious because Jesus' victory over Satan is ours. Jesus' perfection in the face of temptation is our perfection in the face of temptation. Timothy Keller, a pastor and theologian, he, he said this in talking about our salvation. He said, in light of Jesus, our judgment day has been moved from the future to the past. I remember when I was a kid and I got in trouble one day on the bus and I came home and I wasn't going to be able to ride the bus the next day. Um, I, I'm almost certain I was utterly innocent, but maybe not. And I came home and I told my mom, and, uh, and my mom said the most haunting words that any child can ever hear, wait till your father comes home. And I was like, ugh. And I was like, mom, you don't need to do that. You are a strong and capable woman. You, you don't need to rely on a man for discipline of your child. You can, you can do this yourself, mom. Right? I didn't say that because that would have made it like eight times worse. And she just said, wait till your father gets home. So I went upstairs, and I remember this. I lay on the floor in my bedroom and, like, just waited and was, like, half asleep, half not asleep. And then I heard the second most daunting sound ever, which is the door opening. And I was like, oh. Right? I waited that whole day for my judgment. And a lot of us live the Christian life waiting for that day and not just the Christian life, we, we wait our entire lives, if we know Jesus or not, with this sense that someday there will be a rendering. You have been weighed, you have been counted, and you have been found lacking. Except for Jesus who has put our judgment day in the past. And we now know that the words spoken over Jesus, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased are the words that we await to hear from our heavenly 
Father. And just like our salvation and our justification, the battle that we have with Satan, our test in front of Satan, has been moved from the future to the past. It doesn't mean we won't face him. It doesn't mean we won't fight against him. It doesn't mean that he won't still war against us. It means that the victory has already been won. So when we speak to him now, we speak to him as ones who are victorious. Several years ago, uh, in a summer sermon series, I taught the story of David and Goliath. And uh, as I was teaching the, the story, it got to the end. And in Israel, if you don't know the story, they, they go out against the Philistines in war and they encamp on separate sides of this valley and this, this great giant, this great warrior Goliath comes out and he says, send me your best warrior. We will fight one against one. If I win, you'll be our slaves, Israel. If your warrior wins, then we will have lost. And, and no one from Israel goes out until David, this, this little shepherd boy, who goes out and he defeats in the power of the Lord this giant. Now here's what happens next. After the giant is defeated and his head is cut off and the Philistines begin to flee, do you know what Israel does? They stand up, they blow the trumpets, and they call charge. And they run into the fleeing soldiers in order to capture them. And I used to look at them and I'd go, man, what a bunch of punks. Like you've cowered in your shadows for days upon days. And now that the battle is already done, you get up and charge into battle as if this is your victory. You know what, as I was prepping for it, the Lord said to me, yeah. And I'm calling you to do the same thing. I've already won So run forward with reckless abandon because no temptation can overtake you. No lie can master you. No sin can thwart you again. You have been freed by the victory of Jesus. Church, listen, the the battle still rages. There's still temptation for us. There's still suffering. There's still trials. And there's still difficulty. It would be wise for us to know and understand it. But we are called to lean into our, our Lord. Knowing our strength comes from Him and our victory comes through Him. Just as Jesus has said In the world, we will have tribulation. But church, take heart, for he has overcome the world. Let's pray.